Hugh Ronzani here from the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra, and welcome to another year of Tales of Baroque. With Xavier de Mestre returning to woo us all in Vivaldi's Venice, Senior Lecturer in Musicology at the University of Sydney Conservatorium of Music, Dr. Alan Maddox and I take a close look at life and harps in Venice during the affluence of the Baroque period. Hi, Alan. <laughs> Hi, Hugh. It's good to see you again. It's wonderful to be together again in the new year. Um, obviously, this first uh, uh, series we've got coming up, Vivaldi's Venice, is a rather exciting program. Um, uh, it touches on uh, several things, but uh, a wonderful instrument in the harp is, is featured here. Xavier de Mestre coming back for the second time. Uh, yeah, very exciting to have him back. So what a terrific player. And, uh, and we're also going to see something that you mentioned earlier while we we're just uh, chatting in passing. Each different type of concerto is featured here in the program. Yeah, we think of concertos these days as being uh, one particular kind of genre, but at the time there are actually a whole lot of different sorts of concertos, and we have examples of most of them on the program, so it's a nice opportunity just to look at what kinds of concertos there were. Yeah, and uh, another thing is that we're centred on the city of Venice, and what a wonderful place to be for the first program this year. Yeah, and that's uh, very exciting to me because um, it's a place where I've spent a fair bit of time, where I've done some research recently. Uh, I spent uh, a few weeks during my last uh, sabbatical leave working on sources in in Venice, so it's quite exciting to get to talk about um, music in Venice during this period, which is exactly what I'm, I'm really interested in. So maybe we could start with a description of Venice at the time. What would it have been like around the time of Vivaldi and his contemporaries? I'm sure many of our listeners have been to Venice um, but one of the things that that really strikes you going there now is the approach to the city where you come across the bridge that goes from the mainland into the city uh, either on the train or uh, by car but most people will go by train because the access is pretty limited and there's nowhere to park when you or to drive when you get there because there are no roads. Indeed. Uh, The The point being that the city is all constructed on the water and the way of getting around is still either by foot or by water on the canals. (laughs) So uh, these days we arrive generally by train, get off at the railway station and then you walk or you get on the Vaporetto, the ferry, and uh, Mm -hmm. and go up to see the sights. But in Vivaldi's day there was no bridge. In fact it wasn't built until 1933. So until that time to get into the city at all you had to go by boat. Mm. So you came up to Mestre or one of the other villages or towns on the the borders of the lagoon and you got in a gondola or uh, another kind of boat and you sailed or rowed across to the city. So it's a really kind of spectacular and atmospheric uh, way of approaching the city. Um, if you've flown into Venice Airport, I always try and get a seat on the right-hand side of the plane and the, on the in the window seat because you get the most spectacular view of the city from the air coming into the airport. I had the luck of doing the uh, the trip in a boat actually from the mainland to Venice uh, once. It was very uh, very fortunate, and the city just sort of uh, arrives over the horizon <laughs> like this, and and you feel like you're you're stepping into another another planet almost another another world. Yeah. And and, and as a city, it, it is so different to uh, what we're, we're used to here in Australia. Yeah, and to what anybody else in Europe was used to either. Um, Venice was a very exceptional place throughout the whole period, the 16th, uh, 15th, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries. Uh, 
partly because of this geographical position and the way that the city is laid out, but also because it's, of its relationships with the rest of Europe and the rest of the known world at the time. Mm. Uh, by the 18th century, when, Venice, when Vivaldi lived there, it was uh, kind of declining as a major power. But uh, through the, particularly up to the 16th century, Venice had controlled pretty much the whole Mediterranean, and that meant controlling trade, particularly with the Middle East. <coughs> Remember, and- it was a Venetian, Marco Polo, who had been all the way across overland to China. Mm. So they also had strong interests in all of those overland trade routes. And all of that trade uh, coming into Europe from the the Far East, as they they viewed it, of course, and the Middle East, uh, went through Venice, effectively. Mm. And this is what fueled all of the the money that was able to uh, generate uh, the the sorts of cultural events. And, and, yeah, and all of that artistic patronage yeah. came from the aristocracy of Venice. They were really interesting in being the only uh, aristocracy of any. Uh, major European power, where their wealth came not from owning land and therefore from agriculture, but from trade. Uh, In all the other uh, major European powers, being in trade, being involved in in buying and selling things and so forth, was considered below the status of an aristocrat. Uh, You were supposed to sit in your your landed seat in the countryside and then come into the city, say if you were in England, you'd come to London for the season and and so forth. But you didn't work. Uh, You oversaw other people who worked and provided all of the money that allowed you to to live in the style to which you were accustomed. And and I presume that you you were responsible for their their protection and security. It wasn't just a simple matter of sitting down and, and you, you know, taking uh, all of the profit from, from hard Well, hard particularly labor. in earlier periods, yes, there was, uh, th- that's where the whole system of patronage, of course, comes from. The mm. idea is that the, uh, the person and the, the upper-class person uh, patronises the, mm. the lower-class people. And today we use the term in a kind of derogatory sense. Mm. You know, we say, don't patronise me, don't speak to me as if you were my patron. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this period, it's actually a system in which uh, it derives from the feudal system in which there are kind of mutual obligations. So the obligation of the uh, the peasant or the lower class person is to pay their taxes, to be available for military service if they're required and mm-hmm. so on. And the duty of the overlord is to look after those people, both by protecting them militarily, but also by providing uh, basic social services mm. and so forth within the area of their control. So where did musicians uh, lie in this uh, social structure? Uh, were they also a part of uh, the nobility or were they um, uh, lower down in the, in the ranks? Professional musicians were always lower down um, because being a professional musician was a job. It was kind of, it was like uh, any other um, industrial kind of job. You were uh, or, or rather we should say artisan kind of job. Mm. So it was like being uh, a fishmonger, a, um, uh, a butcher, uh, a paper worker perhaps. Um, they were, so they're all just trades basically and music was a trade that you learnt in an apprenticeship system uh, effectively similar to any other trade. And that meant that if you were an aristocratic musician, and they were very fine aristocratic musicians, mm. it meant that you would never ever work professionally uh, you would uh, perhaps invite professional musicians to join you in your private concerts. Uh, you would uh, employ professional musicians to maybe even play your compositions. Mm. And there were some really uh, eminent people, including uh, the Emperor Charles VI, for example, of Austria, who was himself a very fine performing musician. Uh, there's a record of him uh, directing a, an opera performance from the harpsichord with uh, other members of the aristocracy playing in the orchestra. <laughs> uh, so they were clearly really good. 
So this is a time in which being a good musician is seen as an appropriate thing for an upper-class person, but they would never, ever perform in public. Yes. Uh, that, so that was something for the, the kind of lower-class professionals. Uh, how does someone like Vivaldi, then, as a figure, fit into this? Because wasn't he more or less uh, not affiliated with our, the aristocracy but with the church? Um, uh, how does that work? Yeah. For somebody like Vivaldi, uh, his father was a violinist who worked in the orchestra of St. Mark's uh, Cathedral, in, or at that time Basilica, in Venice. Um, and uh, Vivaldi, along with many other uh, up-and-coming musicians, got openings through that kind of employment, working initially as casual, and then you might work your way into a permanent position mm. with one of the important churches. Um, but there were other opportunities in Venice and which made it a, a real centre that attracted uh, good musicians to go there because there were so many opportunities. Mm. So there were the important churches like St Mark's, but there were also multiple theatres playing opera at any one time, and they were always uh, introducing new repertoire. So they had to have really good, uh, sharp musicians not only to play, but also to compose new mm. music. And so Vivaldi, um, we don't know so well that side of his career, but actually what he thought of himself as doing for a lot of his career was being an opera composer and impresario. Mm. He was actually the producer, putting on operas, organising the, the musicians, the singers and so on, and composing music for the opera theatres. Now let's take a, a, a step back and, and just think about that. So he thinks of himself potentially as uh, an impresario putting on performances, but he was also a priest. Uh, is this, are these two th aren't these two things at odds? Uh, they are a bit, yeah. Uh, there wasn't a, a kind of really clear dividing line. Uh, a lot of clerics did kind of cross over into the, um, the, the world of, of court music particularly because... Uh, priests always you needed a priest in your uh, your aristocratic household to to say mass and so forth and if they happened to be a really good musician then they could be involved in the, the music there uh, and even in the theatres there was some crossover somebody like Cavalli for example in a previous generation was also a cleric uh, mm. and but mostly they were rather disreputable clerics because it wasn't really <laughs> the sort of thing you were supposed to do if you were uh, a member of the clergy and uh, Vivaldi um, had a, a quite anomalous kind of situation where he was a priest uh, he was put into it quite early by his family and this was a very typical thing in Italian families because uh, you of course with no birth control at the time people tended to have large families and uh, with a system of uh, primogeniture where the prop any property any business in the family is passed down to the eldest son what are all of the rest of those kids going to do? And so there was a kind of informal system where uh, you would tend to allocate the, uh, the children in order to different kinds of occupations. Um, in the upper classes, you would tend to have the first son would be the, the, the would inherit the, the family name and property and so forth. The second son would tend to go into the military and become an officer. The third one would become uh, a monk or a priest. Mm. And that applied to some extent in the sort of lower middle class families like Vivaldi's as well, I think. So uh, partly it was a matter of just providing a secure um, employment in a way mm. for a child and seems to have been something like that for Vivaldi so he kind of finishes up he does take holy orders and so forth because I guess that was the career path he was on mm. but uh, he famously got out of actually acting as a priest uh, in any practical way uh, 
And his reason for that, whether it was an excuse or, or to what extent it was a, a real reason, we can't really tell, was that he had a chest complaint. It was probably something like asthma. <laughs> and uh, so he, um, the, one of the duties of a priest, of course, is to say Mass every day. And uh, what he said was that he had uh, been caught out so many times when he was halfway through saying Mass and uh, got a terrible cough or something and he couldn't go on and had to interrupt it. And this was a terrible thing, of course. You can't just stop in the middle of Mass and not not say the Mass properly. Mm. Uh, and so he got a special dispensation to say that he, although he was a priest, he didn't have to say Mass every day. And that meant that, in fact... For a lot of the time, he didn't really have to, to live and operate as a priest. He didn't have his own parish or anything like that. Uh, so for most practical purposes, he was really working as a professional musician. But uh, was he working specifically in a church or what was the group that was actually employing him then? Uh, yeah, he worked in uh, a, a disparate array of uh, different kinds of, of jobbing employment, we might say, as most musicians did at the time. Right. Unless you had a permanent job at, say, St. Mark's Basilica or another major church, uh, nearly everybody was making a living from various bits and pieces. Um, mm. And so working in the theatres, working in the churches, but also, and this is the other kind of... Uh, uh, piece of the puzzle, I guess we could say in Venice, the famous ospedali. <laughs> yes, I'd read a little bit about the uh, a little bit about the ospedali, and I was I was wanting to get uh, get to that. So, what were the ospedali, and how did they function, and or the, the the musicians that were were there? What importance did they have in in life in in Venice and in the development of culture in Venice and mm. music? Ospedali in Italian literally means uh, hospital, but not quite in the sense that we use it in English. Uh, uh, it um, th these institutions are often described as orphanages, but they weren't quite that either. Uh, what they were were um, homes for um, poor or abandoned children. Uh, there were analogous institutions in lots of other places. One that people may have heard of is the Foundling Hospital in London, which was patronised by Handel. Mm. There's that word again, patronised. Handel was one of the patrons, patrons of the institution, and so he did fundraisers for them and so forth. Mm. So in Venice, uh, the ospedali took in children who, mostly uh, illegitimate children, uh, or children whose parents were simply too poor to support them. Mm. Uh, they would often have a, a little... Uh, kind of hatch or window in the wall where people could come at night in the dark anonymously and deposit a baby uh, who they couldn't look after uh, and know that somebody inside was going to collect that baby and look after it. And one of the really poignant things about this is that um, often people would give up a child in this sort of situation but with the hope that someday they would be uh, in a better situation um, uh, and would be able to come back and collect that child. But how are they going to identify, how are they going to prove that they are actually the parent of that child? So what they would do was leave a token. And generally this would be something which you could divide in half with two pieces that had to match together. Mm. So you would get uh, a little printed uh, sacred image maybe or some other kind of handmade object uh, that was very distinctive cut it in two and leave half with the baby and take half away and so there are, uh, there's a, a little museum at uh, the Ospedale della Pietà, the one where Vivaldi worked um, where it's, it's a bit hard to get in because it's a private thing and you know they'll only let you in if you make an appointment and have a tour group and so on but right. nevertheless you can go in and see where they have a, an, a display of a lot of these tokens that were left with children whose 
parents obviously never came back to get them. And so this token was just there in their file, I guess, in the system, yes, just waiting. in case, and nobody ever came for them. So they are institutions for looking after these children, um, and and they were quite big. Um, and there were there were lots of institutions of this kind all over Italy and indeed all over Europe. But the particular four that were famous in Venice were the ones that were for girls. There were also ones for boys. But these ones for girls uh, figured out that um, there was a way in which they could support financially the uh, the, the institution and look after this large population of girls who really were not uh, able to work or to support themselves in any very practical way. And that was that uh, each of the institutions, they were run almost like uh, convents and the, the girls were treated almost as if they were nuns, even though they weren't. Mm. Uh, they were kept enclosed. They never got to go outside and mix with uh, the general population. Um, so what were they going to do? Well, they had to have their own chapel, so that they could go to church, um, mm -hmm. as, as people were expected to do at the time. And one of the ways of occupying them and to make sure that they had uh, good, um, uh, kind of well-developed church practices was to have a choir. And if you had a choir, well, you could have a bit of an orchestra as well. And during the 17th century, this developed in these four particular institutions uh, to the point where they... Th their level of musicianship was absolutely outstanding mm. uh, because they were enclosed in this environment where they could really focus on just doing music. The people who were selected, and they were only an elite group, a small group of the, the inmates of the institution who were kind of selected. In inmates. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, and we could call them that because they, were, um, they weren't exactly prisoners, but they were enclosed. They, yes. They, they didn't get to go out unless they got married. And it wasn't by choice either. That's right, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, out of the population of, say, the, the Ospedale della Pietà, mm -hmm. where Vivaldi was, there were perhaps a 1,000 girls and women in wow. there at any time. And because many of them stayed and, and lived in... Uh, Their whole uh, lives there. Yeah. Right. Um, out of those, perhaps um, 25 or so uh, were selected for their musical aptitude and got a really high-level professional training in music. And so they formed the choir and orchestra. Mm. Now, where are they going to perform? They didn't do public concerts. What they did was they performed in church. So in uh, when people so that the church services were open to the public. And people could come in and hear this extraordinary choir and orchestra of all women. And this is what was outstanding, because remember, at this time, the only professional musicians who are women in all of Europe, effectively, are opera singers. Mm. There are no female professional violinists, um, flute players, anybody else. Um, all of those roles were done by men. So... The idea that you could go to Venice as people and, and tourism then as now was a big deal in the 18th century, uh, that you could go to Venice, go to church and hear an outstanding professional level uh, orchestra and choir of all female performers. Mm. That was an extraordinary thing. And so that's how they funded uh, essentially what they were doing. Uh, they, they had these, these tourists that would come and, and obviously uh, potentially donate or, or provide some money for, for, exactly. for what what the experience that they've had and yeah. what they've seen. And it heard. certainly wasn't the whole way that the, the institutions were supported, but it, it definitely made a significant contribution. And uh, musicians like Vivaldi, 
body then and the training that they would have been able to provide to these uh, girls. I imagine their uh, involvement in the Ospedali uh, was very uh, important too. It was, yes. So Vivaldi's job um, at the uh, Pietà was not mostly as director of music, that uh, they had various other people who did have that title, but Vivaldi's job most of the time was actually as violin teacher. And so he would teach the most advanced students on the violin, and they would then teach the younger ones, the, right. the beginners, and bring them up to, to the, the level. And so they had specialised teachers for violin, for keyboard, and, and so forth, for the other major instruments. So they would be able to come in from outside. And the fact that Vivaldi was a priest probably helped to facilitate that uh, because the, uh, the women of the institution were not able to interact freely with men in the normal course of things. And so having uh, a priest um, uh, come in was less of a, a big deal, I guess, mm. um, in terms of interacting with them. Now, outside of the Ospedali and uh, I suppose the, the, the importance of the church in Venice, there were also uh, all sorts of things going on in, in in the, in the city, it was a centre of trade, as, you, as you've already mentioned. Uh, what would life have been like for the uh, lower and middle class rather than the aristocracy? Can you set the scene mm. a little bit for us? Yeah. So if we go back to um, the, the, the idea of you know, arriving in, in the city by boat, you then have to get around by boat. Uh, if you don't go by boat, and it's, of course, still the same today, you have to walk. And so you go through all of these tiny little narrow alleyways. And anyone who's been to Venice will be very familiar with how confusing it is just trying to get around. Um, I first went there in the days before um, we had um, f- phones with GPS. Uh, with GPS and so forth. And trying to get around, even with a map, is really tricky. It's so easy to get lost. And in those days, if you didn't have a map, you absolutely had to hire a guide who would mm. be able to <laughs> take you where you needed to go. Um, even 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 with GPS these days, you often have to finish up in one of the piazzas where you get a really good signal uh, because there's a some clear sky above you in order to locate where you are. So uh, the experience of walking around those narrow alleyways, and particularly at night when there was no street lighting or anything, mm. it's no wonder that there were a lot of... Uh, robberies and so forth going on. It was a dangerous place to be after dark. Uh, And uh, so for lower class people, you would have known your local area really well. You would have known all the people who lived near you. Uh, You belonged to a parish where you knew the priest and so forth. And you probably had, your family had probably lived in the same area for a long time. Uh, You had deep roots in that community. uh, And you had deep roots in the particular trade that your family was in. So uh, the a particular trade was passed down from father to son. And with somebody like Vivaldi, we see that as a musician. He, mm. his, he is Indeed. born into the, the trade of being a musician. Yeah. And in the same way, other people were also born into their particular trades. Uh, so um, that's the, the kind of life that uh, a person in the lower classes had was di- dictated mostly by the sort of job that they did and the sort of status that it had. Now, there were some things that cut across that because there was a military draft And that meant that um, people from every uh, class of society and from every trade uh, were subject to being called up to the Navy. Of course, the Navy is the big deal in in Venice because it's all about the the sea power Mm. and controlling trade in the Mediterranean. Uh, So um, you can be pulled out of your normal occupation to do that. But otherwise, you pretty much spend your life occupied in doing the particular trade that you're born into. The other important thing about society, and again, it's similar to um, many other European societies, is there's a very strict stratification of uh, by class. So there is the, the 
proper aristocracy at the top is a very small group of of uh, aristocratic families with very long histories going back um, in many cases to the establishment of the city in the ninth century or so. Uh, and these are the names of the palazzi. So if you go there, and a lot of them are now museums. You can t- go to the Palazzo Mocenigo, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, these famous names are the names of the aristocratic families that ruled. And it was from their ranks that the Doge was elected. So this is a, a, what, one of the things that was uh, different about Venice and its political system was that instead of having a hereditary ruler, they elected a ruler, but only from this very small group of aristocrats. And he was the doge, which is just Venetian dialect for duce or duke. Mm. So he's the ruler. So then you have this aristocratic class. Beneath them is a kind of middle class group who are the, the, the uh, merchants and traders and so forth. And very, very occasionally, when the, the city was really desperately short of money, they would open the Golden Book, oh. which meant that... And the Golden Book was which recorded the lineages of all of the aristocratic families. It sounds like a very important book. <laughs> yeah, it was very, very important. And uh, so occasionally, like once in a century, uh, when they were desperately short of cash, they would open the Golden Book. And if you were in the next level down and really, really rich, you could buy your way into the aristocracy. But otherwise, strict uh, delineation. So somebody, uh, so an interesting case from the musical point of view is Albinoni, who is represented on our program. Uh, he's known best now for the uh, for his famous oboe concerto, and Albinoni was from this kind of middle trading class. His family uh, owned a um, paper manufacturing company, which mostly made playing cards. Mm. That in itself was a kind of uh, an industry, just making playing cards. Right, um, and uh, so that meant that he was in a kind of halfway position. He couldn't really be a professional musician because he was a little bit too high up in the, the social structure, but he could effectively work as a, a professional musician without ever joining the guild of the musicians and without ever actually saying, I'm a professional musician. He could say, oh, I'm a, I'm a dilettante, I'm an amateur, I just dabble. But in fact, for practical purposes, yes, he was, he was a working as a yes. professional. Uh, it's, it's fascinating that you talk about playing cards and that that would be uh, obviously the livelihood of an entire family. Uh, clearly, uh, people were into gambling and, 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 uh, and playing cards as a, as a regular form of entertainment, were they not? Yeah. Um, speaking about the kind of the, the lives that ordinary people led, um, it's so hard for us these days to think ourselves into the kind of um, society in which there is no radio, there's no TV, there's no movies. They're so ubiquitous in our lives today that these are the things we turn to for entertainment if mm. we're not looking at our phones, which uh, <laughs> in the last 10 years has become the thing. But in those days, of course, there's none of that. So what do you do to entertain yourself? Uh, at all levels of society, people played games um, and they talked a lot to each other and they sang. They made music in the, in the taverns and, uh, and, uh, and in private houses. People made music and the kind of music you made depended, of course, on your social level. So uh, if you're at the bottom level, you're probably going down to the pub and, and uh, having a dance and a sing um, down there. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're at the top level, then you have your maybe your own... P- professional house musicians who compose new music for you and perform for you you and your invited guests and so forth. But everybody's making their own entertainment. And so playing cards are important for that, partly because people just play card games for for entertainment. Mm. Uh, But also, as you you hinted, uh, gambling is a big deal. 
And uh, so one of the ways that Venice made its money was from casinos, as is still the case today to some extent. As you were saying that, I I mean, I was imagining these three things coming together, um, being obviously the the affluence of the the city in itself as a centre of trade, um, uh, the potential dangers, because obviously where there's money, then you're also going to have that side of the the problem, um, and and gambling. I mean, obviously, this is almost like a triad. uh, which, which was inevitable. Yeah, and Venice certainly had a, had a reputation right through this period of being uh, a slightly dangerous place, but a really exciting place. It mm. was somewhere you had to go if you were able to travel. Uh, and people from the upper classes, of course, did the grand tour. Uh, if you were from Germany or France or or Britain particularly and you were any kind of a gentleman, and it was usually the men rather than the women who got to do it, uh, but as part of your finishing after going to school and perhaps university, you would be sent off to do the Grand Tour. And one of the things on the Grand Tour was to go to Venice and see this extraordinary place with its extraordinary culture and uh, so part of that is to go, you would go to church in one of these ospedali and hear these amazing female choirs and orchestras. You would go to the theatre to hear the extraordinary operas, which you couldn't hear in the same way anywhere else. And as part of that experience, uh, in the foyer of the opera house was always a casino. <laughs> so if you got bored with the opera, you could go out and have a gamble uh, during the interval or They've indeed during the show. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a kind of um, uh, a, uh, a thrill a minute kind of a place yeah. <laughs> and famous also for its bordellos and so forth. So um, people could get into any kind of trouble you wanted to get into. You could get into it in Venice. And then be absolved maybe the next day. <laughs> <laughs> you hope so, yes. There were lots of churches too. <laughs> So uh, going back to Albanoni and Sonata and Concertos, uh, what is the the main difference between, just to to start off for those who don't know, between a Sonata and a Concerto? Because we're going to see, obviously, Albanoni's second Sonata um, from his Opus uh, 2 on the program, and we're also going to see a whole uh, number of Concertos, including ones by uh, Vivaldi and Marcello. Yeah. First thing to say about that is that there's not always a clear division between sonata and concerto. By the time we get to the 19th century, when I guess most of the repertoire that that many of us are familiar with comes from, we're talking about Mozart and Beethoven and Brahms and all of those, by that kind of time, the division is really clear. A sonata is a piece for... Uh, either one instrument by itself, typically the piano, or maybe two instruments, the piano and violin, piano and cello, that kind of thing. Whereas a concerto is an orchestral piece with a soloist accompanied by the orchestra. Pretty clear. Mm. But in the 18th century, the divisions are much less clear. Uh, Originally, sonata just meant a piece to play as Mm. opposed to a piece to sing. And so it could include all kinds of things, including sometimes vocal parts. So uh, the, the name that's on the title of the piece or the kind of written on the front doesn't necessarily tell you too much about what kind of a genre it is. Mm. By the early 18th century, for the most part, that had started to to kind of separate out so that uh, a sonata did generally mean uh, a piece for small forces, uh, not necessarily a single instrument. In fact, typically it was for uh, three, four parts. Um, the trio sonata is the famous kind of uh, genre in which you would have typically two violins and continuo made up of, of organ and, or harpsichord 
and cello. Mm -hmm. Um, So even though it's called a trio, it would normally have uh, or often have um, four or five players altogether. So that's one kind of sonata. Other kind of sonata is for one solo instrument with uh, continuo accompaniment. Um, And only gradually through the 18th century do we get sonatas that are just for a single instrument, usually the keyboard. Mm. So that's sonata on one side. But there are also sonatas that are for groups of instruments. And so, uh, again, the the boundary is not always clear. Right. And so take us through maybe some of the concerti that we're going to see um, uh, on the program in Vivaldi's Venice. Yeah. So if that's a sonata, then let's look at what's the difference with a concerto. Now, a concerto could be of the, the kind that became established in the 19th century as the normal one. In fact, there's kind of antecedent for that standard type of concerto, which is simply a piece for one solo instrument accompanied by an orchestra. Uh, and Vivaldi wrote lots and lots of those kinds of concertos, as did his contemporaries. In fact, Vivaldi was uh, the most important composer in establishing that. He didn't invent it, but he established that kind of concerto as being a really important genre. Um, and it's a typically Venetian thing, being very kind of flashy. You get to show off the virtuosity of the solo player accompanied by the orchestra. But there are also concertos which are called concerti grossi, or concerto grosso is the singular. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they are concertos where you have um, multiple soloists. But uh, again, there are some kind of important divisions within this. So a proper concerto grosso is one which is not just multiple soloists altogether. It's a particular group of soloists, normally the same group that would play a trio sonata, so two violins and continuo. They are the solo group, and they are contrasted with the orchestra. Mm-hmm. But the way it works is a bit different from what it does with a solo concerto. In a solo concerto, the orchestra plays the whole time, and then the soloist comes in and does their fancy bits accompanied by the orchestra here and there, and then drops out again, and you have an orchestral bit, and then you have another solo, and so forth. In a concerto grosso, it kind of works the other way around, because the solo group in a concerto grosso, the two violins and continuo, they're self-sufficient. They don't need the orchestra to be there in order to be able to play. So it kind of works the opposite way around. They play all the time, and the orchestra drops in and out as a kind of contrast Mm. uh, from time to time. And in fact, we think typically the uh, solo group would actually be the leaders of the orchestra. So they would be playing the whole time. Uh, They would be the leader of the first violins, leader of the second violins, leader of the continuo group. And uh, they would be playing continuously and the orchestra would come in to reinforce them as a sort of contrast effect from and time to time. would there have been a conductor uh, then bringing all of that together or were they literally leading their uh, various groups uh, yes, independently or was it the uh, soloist on the continuo instruments, for example, the harpsichord, who was leading everyone? Uh, it varied a little bit, but essentially in this period there wasn't a conductor. Uh, very unusual. Only if you had a, a huge outdoor performance with hundreds of players or something, somebody mm. might have to get up and, and try and keep them all in time. But uh, normally uh, it was led by either the first violin or the continuo harpsichordist, um, perhaps the two of them kind of working together. Uh, the Maestro di Capella, the, or Kapellmeister in German, the, the music director, was normally the harpsichord player, and so they would be in the centre of the ensemble and in a good position to 
to organise the whole group in pretty much the way that we see somebody like Paul Dyer doing with the Brandenburgs. They would sit at the harpsichord playing most of the time but at important moments either indicate with a nod of the head or a raised hand uh, to bring in people at exactly the right time. That kind of uh, conducting as a much more as a kind of chamber group, as we would think of it today, rather than being the, the Herbert von Karajan standing out the front of the yeah. Berlin Philharmonic doing the kind of what I call the interpretive ballet yes, that, yeah. <laughs> uh, that goes with those huge orchestral pieces. So we've uh, talked about concerto, the solo concerto and the concerto grosso. And, uh, but there is one other important kind of concerto which we're also going to have on this program, which is one that doesn't have a soloist at all. Now, to a modern sensibility, that sounds really weird. Surely the whole concept of a concerto is that it's a contrast between soloist and orchestra, mm. but not necessarily. There are, there are concertos um, from this period composed by people including Albanoni and Vivaldi and Durante from, uh, from Naples and so on, which have no soloist. Sometimes they'll have an instrument which just solos for a few bars here and there. Maybe the first violin just takes a little solo here and there, or no soloist at all, in which case it's almost more like uh, a little symphony or something mm. like that. And so, again, the terminology is fairly blurry. A con con the term concerto really just means a group of people playing together. And mm. so uh, whether they are playing, um, featuring somebody or not, um, doesn't necessarily determine the, the kind of genre. So you'll see all of those kinds of pieces labelled concerto in this program, and indeed they are concertos, but they're actually different kinds of pieces. Now, uh, going back to uh, harps, this mm. is a fantastic instrument, and one we probably don't hear enough in concert halls uh, uh, these days because of maybe how expensive they are and, and how difficult it is to find a, uh, a harpist um, uh, and touring with them, obviously the size of the instrument, all of, all of those different things. Uh, maybe take us through a little bit about the evolution of the harp and, uh, and, and what sort of instruments would have been around uh, specifically at the time uh, Vivaldi was alive. Yeah. Uh, harps, of course, go right back to the ancient world and are used in various cultures all over the world because it's, in, a, in its essence, such a simple technology. Basically, it's just some kind of a frame across which you can stretch strings uh, with some kind of a resonator attached so that there are... Um, harp-like instruments used, say, in African cultures where the resonator is made from a natural material like a gourd mm -hmm. um, and you just have either a curved or an angled piece of wood uh, across which the, the strings are stretched. Um, forming, these are sometimes called a bow harp because it's a bowed piece of wood mm. with the strings across it and a resonator attached just to make the sound louder. But uh, if we talk about European harps and the kind that leads up to the sort of music that we're hearing on this program, uh, essentially they're instruments which developed um, particularly through the, from the Middle Ages onwards uh, which consisted, and in, in, in European harps, one of the distinctive things is that they are typically uh, formed with a triangle, so that the uh, the body of the, the the kind of the part that holds the strings, either curved or with an angle in it, also has a pillar at the front that holds up the uh, holds those two pieces apart in a sense, forming a complete triangle. Mm. The great advantage of that is that it gives it strength, and that means that you can have uh, more strings and they can be stretched tighter without damaging the structure of the instrument and that means you can make the instrument louder and uh, you, by having more strings it can be more melodic and allow you to, to play proper 
uh, well, melodies that are diatonic, and even later on, melodies that have sharps and flats in them. You just got to have more and more strings to do it mm. effectively. And these days, uh, audiences would be familiar with the pedals, maybe that harpists use to be able to, um, as you as you say, play within certain keys. Um, but but that wasn't always the case. That's right. Um, so medieval harps uh, tended to be small because uh, just the technology of making long strings was difficult and so forth. But by the time we get up to say the seventeenth century, we're starting to get harps that are not quite as big as a modern concert harp that you'd see, say, with the Sydney Symphony, but they're getting fairly large, um, maybe uh, more than a metre high, and uh, they also have um, strings that are not just diatonic. So a medieval harp would have uh, diatonic strings, which means simply like the white notes of the piano with no sharps and flats. And that allows you to play in different kinds of modes, but it doesn't allow you to play in the sorts of keys that we get in, in Baroque music, mm. which do require sharps and flats. So what are you going to do to get the extra sharps and flats? And the first thing that they did was to add an extra kind of layer of strings. So you have one layer of strings that's like your white notes and another set of strings beside them, which are like the black notes of the piano, mm. gives you the sharps and flats. And uh, but it's a bit tricky then to manage because you how are you going to kind of reach through to to get at the other strings? So uh, you can have a double harp with two layers, or you can have a triple harp with three layers, in which you have the sharps and flats on both sides, which means you can get at them with both hands. Right, right? and depending on the position, one's able to um, uh, essentially uh, strum the chord that's that's required. That's right. Yeah. But it, it's a tricky technology because in order to get then at your white note ones, which are down the middle, you have to kind of reach through. And, mm. uh, and without uh, striking the ones that you don't want to, to, to touch in order to get the ones that you do. So uh, the big development that, that changed that was the introduction of pedals. And what the pedals do is connect to a mechanism which has uh, a kind of wheel attached to the top of each string. And that means that if you push the pedal down, it will turn the wheel and that tightens the string or loosens it uh, by enough to make the note go up or down a half step. Mm. And that means it can turn it, say, from an F natural into an F sharp. And so your chord changes from D minor, say, to D major. Mm. Big effect, um, simple mechanism relatively that makes that work. So the modern concert harp is just the, the kind of ultimate development of that system in which you have a whole lot of pedals that allow you to change all of the notes uh, up and down and to play in any key. Um, so in the Brock harp, we see different stages, I guess, of that kind of development, um, which make it possible to, to play different kinds of and music. was it the technical difficulties uh, of mastering an instrument like the harp that maybe limited its use in Vivaldi's time, or was it an, an instrument that was just as prominent as, as any other? Uh, probably wasn't as prominent as instruments like the major wind family like the oboe and, and certainly the bowed string instruments um, it's an element of fashion in it um, it is an element of the development of the technology and it's also a regional thing there were particular places where harps were important in uh, in welsh culture for example it's used in traditional music and there were uses of harps in traditional music i think in spain and, and various other places and in ireland notably absolutely uh, as yes. well yeah. indeed it was uh, an important part of uh, the culture of the nobility and and we see it uh, uh, today um, obviously is a, a symbol of, of Ireland of and, as well as a symbol of the, the fabulous beer Guinness. <laughs> <laughs> yes, anybody who's had a Guinness has seen the, the harp on the, um, on the label. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So 
Um, one of the interesting things, though, is that a lot of those uses of the harp, because they belong to national cultures or to kind of traditional musics, they had music that was not written down. It was mm. not notated. It was uh, held in oral culture. Mm. And uh, that meant that uh, we, it didn't, enter, didn't sort of cross over so much into the kind of art music which has come down to us through music notation and which we hear in concerts like this. So in the 17th and 18th centuries, we have relatively little notated music for harps, even though they were being played quite a lot. We don't see them a lot in orchestral scores and, and that kind of thing. Uh, and the pieces for solo harp are relatively rare during this period. Right. One of the uses of the harp, interestingly, in the early 17th century was as a continuo instrument. So where you would have a, a, a group of instruments like the harpsichord, sorry, the harpsichord, the organ, the theorbo, the, the large lute with the extra bass strings and so on, the harp could be one of those instruments which could also play the accompaniment for singers. Um, mm. And sometimes singers would sing accompanying themselves on the harp in the same way that you could accompany yourself on the lute. And indeed, audiences would have uh, seen that last year if they had um, come to the English uh, the Baroque with Circa program where we had harpist Hannah Lane uh, as part of our continuo uh, group. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. And uh, it's a nice example of the wide variety of instruments that were used in, in continuo playing. It just depended, to some extent, what your local tradition was, uh, what were the instruments that were in favour in the particular area, and so we have all kinds of, of interesting things like the lirone, a, a bowed instrument with lots and lots of strings and a flat bridge on which you can play bowed chords, which we don't usually get to hear. Mm. Uh, the viola de gamba, the various types of, of bass um, uh, instrument like the cello, but also the bass violin, the violone, and so forth. All of these contribute, along with some wind instruments like the bassoon, to playing the, the accompanying continuo part. Well, this has been fascinating, Alan, and, and I'm sorry we don't have more time to, to talk uh, in, in depth about some other things. But thank you very much for your time today, and, uh, and I hope uh, the new year's been finding you well. Oh, thank you very much, Hugh, and same to you. And uh, I'm sure we'll have more opportunity to talk about Venice and concertos and things in future, so I'll look forward to that. Indeed. Indeed.